Some of you know me a little. Some of you know me a lot. Some of you don't know me at all. But, but one thing you do know, if you know me uh, in the prior categories, um, is that every now and then I get kind of stuck on a book that I've read. And that, you know, for six months it defines everything I talk about. Uh, for whatever reason, um, I, I don't know why, but I'm always looking for sort of, of a paradigm to plop down on top of, top of life to make it simpler for me. You know, I'm very simple, and so I need help with these things. Anyway, uh, so uh, about a year and a half ago, I read a book called The Seven Desires. Let's go ahead and get that slide up. And uh, the book, The Seven Desires, was uh, by a couple whose last name is Laser. And essentially what they're doing in this book, they're uh, both psychologists, and what they're arguing in the book is, uh, is that every human being has these seven core relational desires. And so they're not necessarily comp, you know, comprehensive desires, but they're relational desires. And uh, they list them out. I'm going to read them really quickly, and they'll be on the next slide. But these seven core relational desires that we have, uh, one is to be affirmed, and I'll unpack each of these over the course of this sermon series. Two is to be blessed. Three is to be safe. Four is to be touched. Five is to be chosen, six is to be included, seven is to be heard and understood. And essentially what they go on to argue is that whenever they run into these seven core desires in their counseling situations and and settings, what they find is that uh, usually people have not been fulfilled in these areas or even worse, maybe they've been wounded in one of these areas. And so what happens is if they've been unfulfilled in one of these areas or if they've been wounded in one of these areas, they spend the rest of their lives trying to fill up this one or two or three core desires that were unmet or were wounded. And so when I initially read the book, I thought, hey, this would be a great book to read in terms of parenting, you know, in terms of figuring out how to love our kids, to, to affirm them, to bless them, to make sure that they're safe, uh, you know, to hug them, um, to, to choose them over other things. This, the list goes on and on. And so I recommended it to all my friends. And I said, hey, you got to read this book. It'll change the way you parent, blah, blah, blah. See, now all of a sudden my own children are going, oh, great. You plopped a paradigm on top of me. Awesome, dad. Thanks a lot. Next time I say, hey, you want to go hang out? They're going to be like, oh, yeah, to be chosen, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> So now here's what's interesting is they go on to make the point, the lasers go on to make the point that really these core desires that are in us are, are stamped upon us because each of us is created in the image of God. Okay. Let me say that one more time. Each of us is created in the image of God. Now, without getting overly theologically um, complex, we know that the Trinity exists. It's God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit who have lived in uh, eternal union and relationship with one another. Okay, that's incredibly complicated. I'm not even going to try to unpack it. Go read the Westminster Confession or something. Anyway, but the point is, is that when God created us, he created, created us like him in the sense that we have his image stamped upon us. And so I would argue that each of these things, uh, uh, these desires are really part of the image of God in us, right? And, uh, and I would go on to argue that uh, it's only God who can fundamentally fill these desires and the, these needs that we have. Now, before we jump into the series, let me take a moment and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you very much for this day. I thank you for this group of people. I thank you that they are exactly the people that you wanted to be here this morning. Uh, Father, I just pray that um, your Holy Spirit would be in this room and uh, that he would be upon us. And that we wouldn't be able to leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God, through the power of your spirit. And so, Father, it's all these things uh, that we pray. Amen. So, uh, several years ago, a television show called 30 Rock came out, right? Some of you guys are familiar with it. I think it just uh, ended last year, maybe. But essentially, it's a very, very clever, extremely tight 
comedy that came out. I've seen you know any number of different episodes um, over the years. We don't have cable, so we just have to kind of watch what we can online. But essentially, the story is, is, is as follows. Uh, there's a woman named Tina, her, she's Tina Fey. In the TV show, she's Liz Lemon. She's a producer of a particular TV show that airs on an NBC affiliate, right? And so her boss is Alec Baldwin, and there's all these crazy characters that's, you know, funny and humorous, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in season five, uh, the NBC affiliate that she's working with merges with uh, another TV uh, company called Cable Town with a K, all right? And so Cable Town has made its money, you know, putting on, you know, cheesy, you know, C-level programming, but it's very effective, unfortunately. And so there's a big brainstorming session with the people from Cable Town and the people from the NBC affiliate, and they're trying to make some adjustments to what they offer on this NBC affiliate. And so one of the things that they're talking about is they're saying, we've got to boost our female viewership. There's just not enough females that are, you know, watching television. We can't get them to watch TV, and they have all these ideas. And then finally, they just scrap all of them. The show progresses until the very last scene of the show when Liz Lemon, uh, who again is played by Tina Fey, comes home, and uh, she sees this on their NBC affiliate programming. Let's go ahead and take a look. Hello there. Well, hello. How was your day? Do you need to talk? Because I'll just listen patiently and say things like, "Uh uh-huh. How annoying. She's clearly jealous of you. And, well, it's his loss. You're a great woman. You deserve a great man for just $24.95 an hour. Yes, please. It's the yellow button, sweetie. (sighs) Okay. Now, I just think that's hilarious. I, mean, I really, really think that's funny. And, uh, and the, the point is, it's not just that women have this desire to be heard and understood. The truth is, because we're all created in God's image, we all have this desire to be heard and understood, even so much so that we might pay to have somebody on TV just sit there and nod and go, uh-huh, and, you know, that must have been so hard today. But, uh, the, again, the point is, um, from all of this, is that this is one of our core desires, this desire to be heard and understood. And the truth is that if we're honest, most of us would have to admit that we probably weren't truly heard and understood, especially probably beginning in our childhoods is when we became most acutely aware of this. And so when you were children, when we were children, we might have heard uh, things like, be quiet, right? Or uh, big boys don't cry, or big girls don't cry, or quit crying and be a man. Our parents may have been too busy, like Probably my parents were, and many of you were, and sometimes we are. And when our kids wanted to talk to us, we simply said, later, I don't have time right now. Uh, some of us as parents, um, or when we went to our parents, maybe we you know, took them something that we were troubled about, or we were worried about, or we com- were complaining, and our parents may have said, that's stupid, or that's silly, or they may have said, Christians shouldn't feel that way, or they may have said, simply get over it, Right? And so as little children, we have these, these desires to be heard and understood. We have hurts and sufferings and pains and all these other things. We bring them to our parents. Sometimes our parents are just too busy. Sometimes they're not equipped to listen. And so they temp- simply tell us to be quiet. We don't have time for you right now. I don't have time to listen to you. Get over it. Um, I was part of a counseling session um, within the last 10 years. And uh, there was um, a grown woman who had children who had been in a verbally abusive uh, situation with her mom And throughout the context of their relationship, the father had simply turned a blind eye to it. And I entered in when uh, she and her husband sat down with the mother and the father. 
And there was this interesting exchange during the course of this counseling session where the daughter basically said, you know, mom, you were so cruel to me. You, you know, you were hard on me. You said all these horrible things to me. And dad, the whole time, all you did was tell me to get over it, have a thick skin, grow up, quit being so sensitive. And it was interesting because the daughter sort of bared her soul at the moment, you know, to her parents. And it was interesting because the father, when the daughter bared her soul to him, basically the dad said this. He said, well, if you just quit being so sensitive, you know, if you would just quit being such a baby, that's what he said to her in this meeting. She just burst out and started crying. And I think he literally just didn't even understand what he had done. But the point is she was crying out to be heard and understood. And what he did was he said, get over it, get a thick skin, right? It's interesting, psychologists say that this desire to be heard and understood of all these seven desires is probably the one that most often goes unfulfilled. It's probably the one that most often isn't actually met, right? And, and so people just cope in all of these different ways when they've been unfulfilled or they've been wounded. They might have used coping responses such as these. One, one of the coping responses that people use when they haven't been heard and understood is they quit talking altogether, right? You know, it's better to just shut up if nobody wants to listen, if nobody cares, maybe it's better for me just to quit being vulnerable and I'll just quit talking, period. Some people go the exact opposite direction, and if they're not heard and understood when they're young, they'll just yell and shout and scream in an attempt to be heard. Some people, when they haven't been heard and understood, will become slow and deliberate speakers with the person that they want to hear and understand them because they assume that surely this person is just too stupid to understand what I'm saying, so I'm going to slow down so they can hear me. Some people become fast talkers, like myself, um, and they won't allow other people to get a word in edgewise because once they get their shot to talk, they're going to talk as much as they can. What's interesting, uh, there was a, a little thing I ran across as I was doing research for this, and uh, there was a, a, a study which basically came out that said one out of three wives say that their dog is a better listener than their spouse. Okay, let me say that one more time. I read this online somewhere. One out of three women say that their, their dog is a better listener than their husband. Now, what's interesting is Bill Maher caught this, and he said the following thing, which I thought was pretty funny. He said, if you're one of the one in three married women who say that your pet is a better listener than your husband, you talk too much. And I have some bad news for you. Your dog's not listening either. He's waiting for food to fall out of your mouth. <laughs> I just thought that was good. I like that. Anyway, in our our home, it would be me. I'm the one that's talking too much all the time. Anyway, um, you know, again, coping mechanisms. Some people are case builders. They become argumentative. They they sort of enter into every conversation where they want to be heard and understood, and they think they've got to build their case, and they think they've got to define it. They enter into it like a lawyer, and that just doesn't work. And then finally, some people, like children, just throw temper tantrums in order to try to have this desire to be heard and understood met. Now, here's what's interesting. Two things before we jump into the main part of this sermon, which, by the way, doesn't sound like a sermon just yet, but I promise it will. But uh, it's this. If you demonstrate one of these traits I just mentioned, quit talking, yeller, shouter, case builder, whatever the case may be, if you demonstrate one of these traits, you need to know that each of these coping mechanisms to try to be heard and understood actually drive away the very people that you want to be able to hear and understand you. Let me say that one more time. If you're one of these people that quit talking as a yeller, shouter, slow-delivered speaker, a fast talker, a case builder, a temper tantrum throw if you do all these things, if if that's you, you need to understand that the very person that you want to hear you and understand you is going to be driven away by these coping mechanisms. It's that they're not working. 
The second thing I want to say to the people in this room this morning before I jump into the main part of this sermon is that if you know someone that employs these coping mechanisms in terms of being heard and understood, you need to understand that these coping mechanisms are probably the result of a wound in their heart that probably happened long before you got there. And so maybe instead of just being irritated by them, or maybe instead of trying to sort of tell them to shut up and quit talking so much or wish you'd talk more and pestering them, that maybe it would help you to see them as really doing this as a product of a wound in their heart, of something that hurt them one time, and so they've employed these mechanisms. Now, the main part of the sermon is this. It's that I want to argue that only God can fully and completely meet these desires in us, that only God can fully and completely meet this desire to be heard and understood. And the question is, how? How does God meet this desire for us to be heard and understood? And it's basically these three things I'm going to unpack today. One, God meets our desire to be heard and understood by inviting us to express our full range of emotions to him. And he meets this desire to be heard and understood by giving us friendship, by giving us relationships. But most of all, God meets this need by entering into the human experience in Jesus. It's not just about being heard, but it's about empathy. It's about being understood. First point. The first point is this. God meets our desire to be heard and understood by inviting us to express our full range of emotions to him. When uh, I was in St. Louis as a youth pastor, one of our favorite families was the Olivastro family. And the Olivastros were very, very Italian. The dad owned a, an Italian restaurant in the hill down in St. Louis, if you guys are familiar with St. Louis at all. They had four children uh, who were just awesome. Their oldest child, his name was Adam, and he at the time was probably 20 years old, and Adam had Down syndrome. And it, part of what made their family so great is that the younger three siblings sort of spent their lives, you know, helping take care of Adam and just interacting with him. It was really good for them as a family. Adam was a really cool kid, and uh, he loved watching movies. So he had this massive VHS tape collection. This is a long time ago. And uh, so he had this, you know, all these movies he loved watching. Well, one day, his mom was telling us, we had to get on to Adam a couple days ago. He didn't clean up his room, and I told him he couldn't watch, you know, his movies that afternoon. And he got mad, and I, he was stomping around the house, and he was mumbling under his breath. And she said, I, you know, went over to him, and I said, you know, she said, Adam, are you mad? And he, he sort of, you know, under his breath said yes. And she said, well, you know, tell me, you know, what are you feeling right now? And uh, she said that he basically let out this barrage of all these mean things, the, uh, the crowning one of which was, I hope you and dad get divorced, is what he said, because he was angry with his mom. And it's interesting because, you know, very calmly, Pam Olivastro responded by saying, all right, well, if, uh, if your dad and I got divorced, who would you choose to live with? And she said that he kind of looked down at the ground for a minute and thought, and then he said, you, and uh, it was an interesting story, but part of the reason it's an interesting story is because what she did was while her son was angry with her because of this punishment, instead of sending him to his room or instead of yelling at him, she went over to him and she invited him to share with her his full range of emotions. And because she was the adult, she was able to hear him in his full range of emotions. You know, it's interesting to think sometimes about Scripture, to think about the disciples, and what the disciples learned about God was primarily through Jesus. I mean, again, they walked around for three years together. And uh, Peter said a very interesting thing in First Peter 5. Of course, Peter would have learned about God the Father through Jesus. And, uh, and one of the things that Peter says in First Peter 5, 7 is he says, cast all your anxiety on him, that is God, because he cares for you. Part of what Peter learned from Jesus is, God is a father. You know, Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. 
And Peter is basically telling these folks, he's saying, look, you can cast all of your cares upon God. He cares for you. You can cast your worries and your sufferings and your frustrations, all these things. God invites you to bring those to him. He wants to hear what's going on in your heart. Not only do we see that in the New Testament, but we see it in the Old Testament, really. I mean, essentially what the, the Psalms are, or the Psalms are opportunities for us in individual worship or in public worship to pour out the same full range of emotions to God. And what's interesting is the, the Psalms are really a liturgy, right? And, and so God gives them to us as a way to pray to him, as a way to worship him. Listen to Psalm 6. Psalm 6 says this, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? I mean, part of what the psalmist is doing there is he's doing two things. One, he's being real with his suffering before God. God has invited the psalmist to bring his full range of emotions. And this this range of emotion might be despair. It might be suffering. But here God puts into worship an opportunity for the psalmist and for us to basically to cry out to God, to tell him that we're suffering, to tell him that we are despairing, right? To even question God a little bit and go, how long, God? Like, are, are you really being just? Are you really being fair? And like a good parent, God is able to hear that. He invites that full range of emotions from us. Listen to Psalm 10. Psalm 10 is similar. It says this, arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You're the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man, right? Now, you've always wondered, you've read those in the Bible before, and you're like, I do not know what to do with that. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't fit into my Sunday school lesson. I'm pretty sure that when I was in kindergarten, that was not in the picture Bible. You know, there was no picture of that. He goes on to say, call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. What the psalmist is doing here, what God is doing is he's inviting us to sort of say those things that we really feel down deep in our souls, down deep in our hearts, and to cry out for justice and to go, hey, God, when are you going to make this right? Like, when are you going to punish the wicked? Now, ultimately, God's the one that determines what happens to those people who you know, are wicked or who are disobedient. That's not up for us to decide But God is giving us the freedom and the opportunity in prayer and in worship to be real with him about the emotions that we are struggling with, right? The Psalms give us a liturgy for public worship. They give us a liturgy for private worship. God invites us to pour out our emotions, anger, anxiety, sadness, and joy. He's willing and able to hear and understand every part of your heart, right? Not just the good parts, not just the happy parts, but every part part of your heart. Let this sink in for just a minute, all right? Let it sink in just for a moment. God invites you to bear your soul to him. God invites you to be completely real, to be completely honest, to be completely vulnerable with him. He desires that you would be intimate with him, and he's big enough to handle everything that's going on in your heart. Does that make sense? That's pretty amazing, right? I mean, sure, we're supposed to praise him, Absolutely, we're supposed to glorify him, but there's a lot of other stuff in the Psalms, right? There's a lot of other opportunities for us to be real with God. God invites our full range of emotions to him. Second point is essentially this, is that not only does God meet this desire to be heard and understood by inviting us to express our full range of emotions to him, but he also meets this desire to be heard and understood by giving us 
friendships, by giving us relationships. Listen to this great quote from C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read The Four Loves, I would recommend it entirely. But listen to the quote. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to his disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating in good taste and finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauty of others. Isn't that a great quote? I mean, essentially what C.S. Lewis is saying there is he's saying, God knows that you have this desire. He knows that you have this deep desire to be known, to be heard, to be understood. And he actually meets that desire by giving you very specifically, very particularly, a group of relationships where that can occur. And not only can they see the beauty of you, but you can see the beauty of them. God meets this need, this desire in our relationships. I've seen it happen again over and over again in my life. When we moved here to Rome, Georgia, now just about nine years ago, we moved here and we, all, we basically knew two people just a little bit. And, uh, and when we got here, it was sort of my job to start a church and just to start meeting people. And it was a little bit scary. It was a little bit crazy. And uh, so, you know, I would sort of start meeting people. Well, within about the same month, Mike Sweeney moved to Rome, Georgia, in order to start Young Life here. And I remember somebody, I don't remember who it was, said, hey, you should talk to Mike Sweeney. They're getting ready to start Young Life. You're getting ready to start a church. And uh, so Mike and I got in touch with each other. Somehow we sat down at this little coffee shop called Urbana that used to be on Broad Street And uh, we started talking. He was talking about starting Young Life and getting to know all these people he'd never met. I was talking about starting a church and all these people I'd never met. We talked about sort of the fears of doing that, the insecurities of doing that, the challenges of doing that. Talked about the challenges of, you know, being a ministry husband and sort of trying to figure out how to love our wives when they're smarter than we were and better than we are in lots of respects. And it was really great because it just happened immediately that we were able to completely connect and understand one another. And I remember telling Krista, I was like, this is so rare. You have no idea. Ministry is so lonely. It's so wonderful that God has given me this person who, like, just after a couple times of us hanging out, can totally get me, and I can get him. It was a blessing very specifically from God. He meets our desires to be heard and understood through relationships, through friendships. Listen to what God says uh, in Genesis chapter 2. This is typically where we read about the Adam and Eve story, but... But here's what God says. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. What's interesting, that word alone there is not actually specifically, you can translate it alone, but it means a lot of other things too. But it means it's not good for the man to be separate. It's not good for the man to be incomplete is really what that word means, right? And so he goes on to say, I will make a helper suitable for him. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. Shame is this idea, this, this painful emotion that you don't measure up, but they were able to stand before one another and, and, and feel no shame. Part of what God does, not just in husbands and in wives, 
but in friendships, right? In brothers and sisters and uh, people that you meet in college who are just your, you're sharing a room with, you're sharing the dorm with, somebody that you meet at work later, somebody that you meet at church, as God gives you friends who you can stand before and metaphorically be naked and be unashamed, right? You can stand before someone else, they can know you and you can know them and in such a way they can hear you, they can understand you and you can accept one another and you cannot be ashamed. We need friendships. Even Jesus in John chapter 15 on the last night of his life talking to the disciples says this. He says, I, have, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Now, it's interesting, right? Jesus was God in the flesh. If God needs friends, if he needed friends, how much more so do we need friends? I mean, when Jesus went to pray uh, in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross, he said, hey, Peter, James, and John, can you guys come with me? I'm depressed. I'm down. I'm really suffering. Can you just be with me, right? Now, we know the rest of the story is they all fell asleep. They weren't there for him. But again, Jesus was human in the same way that we are, and he needed to be heard and understood. He needed friendships just like we do. Again, let this sink in. Again, think about it. God meets this deep desire that each of you has to be heard and understood, not only by inviting you to bring your full range of emotions to him, but by giving you these relationships by which you can bear one, another burden, one another's burdens. Last point. The last point is this, essentially, that not only does God meet our desire to be heard and understood by inviting us to express our full range of emotions to him and by giving us friendships, relationships, but most of all, God meets this desire by entering into the human experience in Jesus. Okay? When I was in uh, Covenant uh, College, this is now 20 some odd years ago, uh, there's a man named John Perkins. And at the time, this idea of sort of racial reconciliation was a big topic. It still is a big topic within the church. And basically, John Perkins said, he was an African-American man from Oakland, California. He basically said, look, did you, you white people need to quit talking about racial reconciliation. He said, the only thing that's going to make any difference is, is when you finally move in, right? When you, when you actually become peers and you enter into the same neighborhoods and the same public school systems with these people that you want to help. I read a story just this past week about a man named Paco Amador, who's a pastor in Chicago. He grew up in Mexico, moved here to the States when he was a teenager, went to high school in North Carolina, went to college at Moody Institute in Chicago. But he became a Christian when he was in high school. He came from a broken family. He was an immigrant Latino. And when he became a Christian and went to seminary, he said, you know, I want to end up, you know, working with and loving on people that are unlovable, that need help that need to be understood, that need to be empathized with, that need to have a voice. And so he moved into an area called the Little Village on Chicago's west side and started a church. Here's the quote that I'm going to read to you. Just follow along with the story. Paco Amador, a pastor in Little Village on Chicago's west side, lives in a neighborhood rife with gang violence, right? So he moved into the neighborhood filled with gang violence. He tells the following story about being invited to lead a prayer vigil for a young man who had been gunned down by a rival gang. He begins by saying this, when I arrived at the vigil, a large crowd of young people, including many known gang members, had already gathered around the sidewalk where I would be praying. I wondered, what should I do? What should I say? I felt fearful and inadequate. Yet I also knew that they had gathered for this prayer vigil. So amid my fears, I prayed silently, Jesus, what do you want me to do here? As I looked over the crowd, I realized most of these scary-looking gang members were just kids, mostly in their mid or late teens, 
with some in their 20s, I was old enough to be their father. They had surely been told repeatedly by authority figures how wrong their actions were and how foolish gang activity was. But as I looked at these hurting teenagers, I wondered, what would Jesus say to these young people? So I asked permission to speak from my heart. I said, since most of you are half my age, I am the age of your fathers. Would you allow me to address you on behalf of your fathers? I know you have plenty of, heart, plenty of times that this back-and-forth violence in our neighborhood, I know that you've been told many times that this back-and-forth violence in our neighborhood is complete nonsense. You've been told how destructive gang behavior is. But today, on behalf of your dads, I want to say to you what should have been said a long time ago. My son, my daughter, would you forgive me for not being there when you were little? Will you forgive me for not being there when you took your first steps? Will you forgive me for not being there to play catch with you when you were young? Will you forgive me for leaving you when you most needed me? As the words poured from my lips, I could not control myself. I began to weep. I wept bitterly. Tears ran freely down my cheeks. I hadn't planned to cry. I was making a fool of myself, completely exposed and emotionally naked in front of this hardened crowd of gang members. But to my surprise, many of them had responded in kind. They, too, began to weep. Now, here's the reason I tell this story. There's this, this man who says, I want to minister to these people, but the only way I can do it is if I move into their neighborhood. The only way that I can really identify with them to, to understand them and to hear their plight is if my kids go to their kids' schools, right? If I eat at the same restaurants, if, if my house is in the same neighborhood as theirs. And what he found was is that when he did this, when he was able to hear and understand and identify with them, that they began to weep and identify with him. This is what Jesus did. Jesus moved into our neighborhood in order to understand our lives, in order to be able to hear and empathize and understand the life, the lives that we live. Listen to this story from John chapter 11. You've heard it before, probably, but it's the story of when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? And so Jesus is friends with this guy, Lazarus. He's friends with Mary and Martha. He he goes um, after Lazarus is dead. And if you guys remember the story, Martha comes out to him. She's angry with him because he didn't come sooner, and she's hurting, and she's upset. And then Mary later comes out to him, and I'll enter the story then. It says this, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, what's interesting is that phrase there, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, is all one word. And that one word is embrimamonos, right? It's a big word, embrimamonos. And uh, it's a word that means to shake with rage or to short, snort with anger, right? It's uh, kind of hard to translate there. Then goes on to say in verse 34, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept, okay? What did Jesus do? He's God, right? He knows he's going to heal Lazarus in a few minutes. He knows there's a happy ending, but he enters into the suffering of Mary and Martha so much so that their suffering becomes his own. So much so that he rages against the death of his friends. So much so that he rages against the pain that these two women are in. Jesus cried even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in order to enter into her suffering with her, right? 
How many of you have wanted to know whether or not God cares? You know, you, you read theology, you look at the suffering in the world, the Middle East, in Africa, in Europe, and any number of different places right here in America, and you want to know, does God even care? Does God care about the fact that I'm stressed out about my exam? Does God care about the fact that my marriage is struggling and I'm having a hard time communicating with my husband or my wife? Does God care that I'm having a hard time raising these children and that, frankly, I'm exhausted? Does God even care? And the answer is the only way that you can know that God truly cares. The only way that you know that he can hear and understand you is by realizing that God was willing to enter into your suffering with you. God, the Son, became a human being in Jesus, not only to save you from your sins, although that was part of it, but also to enter into suffering with you so much so that your suffering became his suffering. God became a man in order to experience headaches, rejection, sickness, death, pain, heartache, everything you've suffered so that he might suffer with you and suffer even for you. God meets our desires to be heard and understood by inviting us to express our full range of emotions to him. God meets our desire to be heard and understood by giving us relationships, by giving us human friendship. But most of all, God meets this desire for us to be heard, understood, to be truly empathized with by entering into the human experience in Jesus. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that... um, You didn't uh, simply send us a book, although I'm thankful for your word, Father, but you came yourself in the form of your son, Jesus, in order to enter into not only our suffering, but also our joy. Father, I thank you that we now have a high priest whom we can come to and we can pray to, we can confess to, and this high priest understands our weaknesses because Jesus, our high priest, experienced those same weaknesses and those same temptations Himself, And so, Father, I pray that we would look to you uh, to meet this desire that we all have very deeply within us to be heard and understood. I pray that we would take our little concerns and our little fears to you, but I pray that we would take our huge fears and our huge uh, concerns to you as well. Father, I pray that uh, we would remember that in your son Jesus, again, that we have a high priest who is able to identify with us completely. And so, Father, it's in his name that we pray these things today. Amen.